Welcome everyone. My name is Rizwan Bukhari. I'm a vascular surgeon in the Dallas area and I practice a plant-based lifestyle. I also teach plant-based nutrition to my patients as a part of their lifestyle modification. And my wife Maya and I also teach plant-based nutrition to the community and anyone else who is willing to listen. So let's get started. Today I'm going to talk about cardiovascular disease and nutrition and the tremendous impact that nutrition has on the development, treatment, and prevention of cardiovascular disease. Before we get started, let me share a little bit about my personal story of how I became whole food plant-based. Uh, many people uh, might think it's unusual that a vascular surgeon uh, is uh, sharing this message with people. And at the, in the beginning, I thought so too, because I'm a uh, proceduralist and a surgeon who treats this disease. And why would I be sitting here preaching about how to prevent it? Now, as I've uh, become very involved in this, uh, the more and more I learn, I think it's actually a shame that I am the only vascular surgeon that I know of in the country that is trying to uh, teach people how not to get cardiovascular disease. So uh, my story starts with the fact that all my life I have been very interested in my own personal health. Throughout my lifetime, uh, ever since I was a kid, I would uh, work out, I would run. Throughout much of my life, I have had a personal trainer. Uh, in my uh, mid-40s, I started uh, doing this uh, exercise program called P90X uh, by a guy named Tony Horton. Uh, many of you may have heard of this. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I learned from that program uh, was that uh, nutrition was an extremely important uh, aspect of uh, uh, physical conditioning. Uh, and uh, uh, he used to preach that nutrition was 80% of the game. So at that point, I stopped focusing just 100% on exercise and began to realize that uh, I needed to work on nutrition. And at that time, I started to eat a high-carb, low-fat diet but I was uh, still focused on utilizing animal products uh, uh, within my diet, as, mainly as a source of protein. At this point, after having been on this program for several years and I was in great physical shape, there were some things that were uh, bothering me. Uh, my cholesterol was high, my triglycerides were high, I was borderline hypertensive, and my blood sugars were uh, running a little bit higher than normal. Uh, even though I was uh, doing what I think or I thought was all the right things, I was beginning to develop the uh, beginnings of a, a lot of these chronic diseases. At this point, I knew that probably by the time I was 50, I was going to be on a medication for my cholesterol, a medication for my diabetes, a medication for my hypertension. Uh, and so by 50, like most Americans, I would be on some sort of medications. So uh, because this is eating away at the back of my mind, I was open uh, for a new message. At this time, my wife dragged me to see a gentleman named Rip Esselstyn at a Whole Foods Market. He's the son of Caldwell Esselstyn, uh, and uh, the whole Esselstyn family is very involved in plant-based nutrition. Uh, at this talk, um, his message was about reversing heart disease through diet. And many of these risk factors that I talked to you about that were uh, present in myself, uh, he basically uh, openly said, through the option of a whole food plant-based diet, you can reverse these things and make them go away. And you can uh, certainly see that this opened my, my mind a little bit. I was a little bit in denial, but at the same time, uh, uh, something got through. And at this point, I went on to read Caldwell Esselstyn's book, How to Prevent and Reverse uh, Heart Disease. Um, I also went on to read the China Study. I started to look at things by Dr. Dean Ornish. Um, and at that point, um, I began to realize is extremely important. And I had already adopted that concept, but then it was in particular the type of diet that uh, uh, was important. And uh, at this point, I began to incorporate and adopt a plant-based diet into my personal lifestyle. 
And a little bit later, uh, you'll hear my professional path towards uh, plant-based nutrition and how my personal and professional paths uh, intersected. I'm a vascular surgeon. Many people don't know what a vascular surgeon is. I operate on the blood vessels of the body. And so uh, to make a distinction, sometimes people think I'm a cardiologist, uh, but we treat the same disease. It's atherosclerosis. It is a very common disease. Uh, heart disease is the number one killer of Americans, so it's, it's very much in the news. As opposed to like a cardiologist and a heart surgeon, uh, the cardiologist does the medical therapies and like minimally invasive therapies through punctures, and the heart surgeon does the bypasses. Um, I actually do both. Okay, so I do the uh, medical therapy for vascular patients. I do the minimally invasive therapies, which are done through puncture-based procedures, and I do all of the uh, operations like bypasses and cleaning them out. So I get to... Um, I get to have relationships with my patients that are long-term as opposed to most surgeons who operate and then, uh, and then say goodbye. Uh, and, and that's actually particularly rewarding for me because um, then I can work on other aspects. Uh, and lifestyle modification has always been an important part of me treating my patients. And when I learned about plant-based nutrition uh, or even how important, not just plant-based nutrition, but how important nutrition was in uh, taking care of patients, it became a cornerstone of my therapy as well. Not everybody knows what atherosclerosis is. We, we've heard of heart disease, okay, but, and we might talk about it, but not everybody really knows what's going on. And so heart disease is a kind of the common term. Atherosclerosis is a medical term. Uh, but also we, we've heard of things called hardening of the arteries or plaque buildup. These all refer to the same thing. And this is the plaque that builds up on the inside, and it causes narrowings and blockages. Early on, it might not limit blood flow. Uh, just like in a pipe, a little bit of sludge on the side of the pipe doesn't limit flow. But as it builds up and builds up and builds up, eventually it reach a critical, reaches a critical mass where it can have effects. And there can be downstream effects. Right here we have a leg artery. And this is uh, a longitudinal cross-section of that artery. This is a normal one where the blood flow is not impeded because there's nothing, no, no blockage. Now take a look at this cross-section here. And you can see this is plaque buildup. And here's the blood flow, and that's the opening. Actually, honestly, even at this point, most people aren't exhibiting symptoms. But the people who have this eventually will. This is kind of the stages of atherosclerosis. Right here is a very early stage. We call these fatty streaks. In this one, uh, there's just the yellow is visible, but it's not starting to grow to the inside and uh, block off the artery. Uh, in this one, this is a moderate stage. You can see there's fairly significant blockages. It's much like this picture here. And it is starting to restrict blood flow. And then look at this one here. This is a very serious case where whatever's downstream of this is going to bear the effects of lack of blood flow. Right here, I wanted to show you an actual picture. This is a real artery. This is an actual histologic uh, cross-section of uh, two arteries. This one is a very clean, very normal artery. Uh, it has multiple layers. I want to point out that an artery is actually a living, breathing, physiologic structure. It's not just a tube. It's a functioning organ. And then when we develop atherosclerosis, we've ruined the function of that organ. This is a, a really bad case of atherosclerosis. You can see the opening here. When I was studying effects of atherosclerosis, we talked about the hemodynamics. Uh, it actually involved uh, Bernoulli's uh, equation and Laplace's law and flow dynamics so that the reduction in flow is a function of the square of the radius. So this is a markedly reduced flow here. The other thing I want to point out to you is and I talked about an artery being a living, breathing organ. Uh, it has multiple layers. There's a muscular layer, which allows the artery to dilate and contract as, it, as that muscular layer responds to different stimuli. There's an outer layer. And then there's a very important inner layer. This inner layer, it's one cell layer thick, and it's called the intima or endothelium. 
And I, bring, I, I, I point that out because there's some important things that I want you to understand about the intima or endothelium. It's one cell layer thick, but it's very important in, in function. It, uh, it regulates things going inside and outside of the artery. Uh, it also creates and emits certain substances that are very important for us. Uh, in this normal artery, the intima is complete and intact. In this diseased artery, there is no intima. So this thing that is a very important part of the physiologic function of an artery is completely destroyed. So not only do you get this narrowed artery, but the, but, uh, which limits blood flow, but the functionality of the artery is also destroyed. Here's why I, I brought up the intima. The intima is responsible for releasing something called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is an extremely important uh, molecule. Uh, it is a, a very pow powerful vasodilator. What that means is it helps arteries dilate or grow in size. It relaxes that muscle that I told you about that's in the outer layers. And so when you need to deliver more blood flow to a certain area, nitric oxide is released, the artery dilates, and you're able to deliver more blood flow. Also, that helps lower blood pressure. When an artery dilates, uh, it helps keep your blood pressure on the lower side. When your arteries are smaller and constricted, your blood pressure goes up. Here's really part of the, the trifecta of this. Uh, nitric oxide prevents atherosclerosis. Basically, all of these things here are arterial health, and nitric oxide is essential for arterial health. What's happening here? Uh, in this artery, where you're not only limiting blood flow downstream, you have no nitric oxide. So the nitric oxide, which was a preventer or protector against atherosclerosis, is no longer there. So not only are you developing atherosclerosis, the thing that's trying to fight it is gone, so more atherosclerosis develops. It's kind of like a bad cycle or a catch-22. It's just going to get worse and worse and worse. Atherosclerosis is this slow, indolent, uh, chronic disease that develops over the course of decades. It doesn't just happen uh, to my patients in their late 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's been developing over time. And uh, we started to really understand this uh, in, during the Korean War. They did a, a series of 300 consecutive autopsies on Korean War vets who were killed in action. What they did is they went and looked at their arteries and saw that uh, the average age of these young men was 22 years old. And they saw that 77% of them at the age of 22 already had the beginning of plaque formation. So this is a disease that starts at a young age. And now, fast forward 50, 60, 70 years. Think about the diet they ate in the 1950s. It actually wasn't that bad compared to the diet we eat today in America. The diet that we eat today in America has rapidly accelerated. I call it the standard American diet. I'm sure many of you have heard of that, or the SAD diet. Uh, and, and now it's full of cholesterol, saturated fat, processed foods. And uh, so you fast forward to today, and this disease is starting younger and younger and younger. Uh, I used to tell people, now we see it in uh, autopsies in uh, prepubescent children, maybe kids who've been killed in a car accident or for other reasons, you can see it. So we know it's starting at 8, 9, 10 years old. But I really uh, recently went to uh, a lecture of a good friend of mine who is a maternal fetal medicine specialist. And she's an expert in plant-based nutrition and, and lifestyle medicine as well. And she told me, uh, and there's evidence for it, that atherosclerosis is now present in the arteries of infants in utero. So what does that tell you? It tells you that the diet of the mother can lead to the formation of these fatty streaks that are already present at birth. And, and now it makes sense to me why now over the course of this 20 to 25 years that I've been doing vascular surgery, it, I'm seeing this at an earlier and younger age. My patients all used to be 65 and 70 years old. Now it's not unusual for me to see someone who is in their late 50s, 
Sometimes I see people in their 40s and 30s. I've even treated people who are in their late 20s. Uh, and I, I will must admit that people with their late 20s probably have a genetic problem that makes the, you know, they throw that bad diet on top of their genetic problem and they get it earlier. The, the trend is that people are getting this disease at an earlier and earlier age and it's because um, our diet is getting worse and worse and worse. Why is atherosclerosis bad, so bad? So I, talk, I have already alluded to you that whatever the artery is supplying, downstream of that artery is going to feel the effects of that artery. If your coronary artery is affected, okay, these small, we have three main coronary arteries that are on the outside of our heart. They're, they're smaller than my pinky. They're probably half the size of my pinky. Uh, and they supply the heart. The heart itself is a muscle and it needs blood flow. If these coronary arteries are blocked, you get chest pain, you can have a heart attack. 50% of heart attacks, the first time a person has a heart attack, it kills you. If you get blockages to the carotid arteries, this would be the, the carotid arteries in the neck here. This is a normal one. Here's an example of a carotid artery that has plaque buildup. But what happens is downstream, which downstream of the carotid artery is the brain, Okay, and that can cause a stroke. One of the main causes of strokes is carotid artery blockages, which is due to plaque or atherosclerosis. And mo when we talk about dementia, people think Alzheimer's dementia. But most dementia is vascular dementia. And what does that mean? Well, what's happening is we are getting microscopic infarcts in our brain. And my, by, what is an infarct? An infarct means death. You can have a myocardial infarct, which means death of your heart muscle. Or you can have a cerebral infarct, which means death of your brain tissue. And we're getting these microscopic infarcts. And one of itself, in and of itself, might not cause major symptoms. People can tolerate that. You know, it's a one millimeter lesion or a half a millimeter lesion. But when people start to have these over and over again over the course of a couple of decades, well, these infarcts coalesce. You start having a whole bunch of small areas in your brain that have, are dead. And then suddenly they coalesce into one big area. And people begin to exhibit symptoms, either maybe stroke-like symptoms or dementia-like symptoms. So atherosclerosis is a major cause of dementia. This is something that I, really, I take care of a lot, that I'm into amputation prevention. About 90% of my practice is this, and it's because it's grown so rampantly, gangrene. So this is the result of the blockages in the arteries limiting blood flow down to the feet. The gangrene develops because a person might have a cut or a scratch or a sore or a wound, a bug bite. They might not be protecting their feet. A person with normal blood flow, they're going to get the blood flow down there, which is going to get the white blood cells, the antibiotics, the healing factors, everything that's needed to heal. Now, somebody who uh, has bl significant blockages in their arteries, when they don't have a lesion or a problem, they might be able to make, make it by. But the second they get a cut, instead of that cut or bite or sore healing, instead it grows bigger. And then it grows bigger and bigger, and gangrene develops. So what I'm doing uh, in this particular case is uh, uh, going in, taking a look at these blockages. I showed you one of the th in the leg artery or the thigh artery, and I might either do a bypass around it or uh, do some device like I do an atherectomy, which is a drill which drills it out, or I might do a balloon angioplasty or a stent on it. We're very good at what we do, and I'd like to say we're very successful, but unfortunately, we're not always successful. I would say about 10% of my patients who come in with gangrene uh, eventually lose their legs. There's over 200,000 amputations a year uh, in the United States. It's a very real problem. Now, there's a very interesting one, uh, the next thing. Impotence is a vascular problem. We need blood flow for normal function. By, by the age of 40, 40% of men experience some form of impotence. By the age of 50, 50% of men. By the age of 60, 60% of men. And what's happening is these plaque buildups to the arteries and the pelvis are becoming significant so not enough blood flow can get down there. 
Now, we've all heard of uh, Viagra, Cialis. These are what are called prostaglandin-2 synthesis inhibitors. They're very powerful vasodilators. So they are able to overcome uh, the disease and make the arteries dilate for a temporary period of time. Okay, it's just a temporary fix. So it works for a little while and then it's gone. It's not a cure. Okay, now, so it's, the other interesting thing is, if a man has impotence in his 40s, you know what he should start worrying about? I got heart disease, I'm gonna get heart disease. So impotence is an, a harbinger. It's an uh, early warning sign uh, you are developing atherosclerosis. And the thing about atherosclerosis, if I didn't make it clear, is it doesn't just affect one part of the body. It affects all parts of the body. So when I'm treating patients, whether that's a carotid problem or a, a leg problem, um, I also get their heart evaluated because there's a 50% a, a chance they've got significant atherosclerosis in the heart. It's probably a 100% chance that they have some atherosclerosis. Not only does atherosclerosis lead to chronic debilitating diseases that cause pain, pain and suffering, but it leads to the ultimate problem, death. 50% of my patients are dead in five years, and that's not because I'm a bad surgeon. It's the disease process that they've got, got going on. Uh, and I'm, I'm focusing on atherosclerosis, but you know, atherosclerosis is uh, as a result of this bad diet I've been talking about, so they also have multiple other chronic problems. This is such a bad problem that uh, once you've been diagnosed with it, there's a 50% chance you'll be dead in five years. So how do you get atherosclerosis? It's a lifestyle-related disease. 80% of the atherosclerosis I treat, maybe 90%, is related to our lifestyle. So what are some of these other lifestyle things? So we talked, um, you know, I'm kind of pointing out about diet. Um, smoking is an important issue. Uh, and, uh, but I would like to point out, you can't blame it all on smoking. And smoking is not the most important issue. I used to think it was. But uh, if you look at smoking incidents in the United States, when you go back to 1964, when the Surgeon General finally put a warning label on tobacco and said, look, this is going to kill you. Uh, the incidence of smoking every year since then, the last uh, 55 years, the incidence of smoking has gone down every single year. Yet, this disease I treat has gone up in incidence every single year, and it's getting worse. Despite our advances in treatment, it's getting worse. Uh, it's three times worse than what I saw when I was in my training 20, 20 plus years ago. Uh, uh, so it's, uh, the smoking cannot be, uh, you know, is not the main cause. I believe firmly it's our exposure, particularly, mostly our diet. So I'd like to point out, people talk about genetics. They'll say, oh, my dad had a stroke. I'm going to get one too. There's nothing I can do about it. My uncle died of a heart attack. Okay, so I'm doomed to it. And that, that's not the reality. What I'm trying to get to you here is that uh, we do have uh, uh, an opportunity to change the course of our lives. Our genes are 99.999% the same. But we all look a little bit different. We all die of different diseases. And that, uh, so what is that, that that causes that? And that's that this new field of study called epigenetics that has popped up in the last decade or two. And epigenetics is that, that there are environmental exposures that turn our genes on and off. Uh, our diet being one of the primary environmental exposures that does that. We're putting food into our, our mouths, not only just three times a day, but all day, every day for most of our lives. And it's one of the most significant environmental exposures we have. Genetics might load the gun, but our lifestyles pull the trigger. Then uh, the, another way to uh, help understand that is if you look at identical twin studies, uh, they can look at identical twins and who've been separated at birth, and there's a few of these that are around, and see that they die for very different reasons. They're genetically identical. And so if people believed it was their genes that are going to determine their entire course of their lives, that it's pre-fated, it's predestined, then they should die at the same age of the same disease process, and they don't. 
some of these environmental exposures, uh, you know, some of them we know are asbestos, plutonium, and tobacco. So what else is important in the development of atherosclerosis? Well, cholesterol, saturated fat, and processed foods. These things right here are the main culprits in our diet. So also, when you think about it, our traditional American diet or our standard American diet is acidotic, and it causes whole body inflammation. How does cholesterol, saturated fat, how, what do these things do in smoking? Well, they cause a direct injury to that endothelium in the arteries. And then when that, when that injury occurs at that site in the endothelium, a hyperactive immune response occurs. What we wish would happen is that our body's immune system would go over there and repair it and then walk away. But what happens is it's, an, it's a hyperactive response. And what happens, our, our immune system goes over there, our white blood cells, our macrophages, they go in and they engulf this cholesterol or the saturated fat. And a, an inflammatory process begins to occur. It, it recruits all of these inflammatory hormones and swelling occurs, inflammation comes in, scar tissue is deposited. So if you could think back to that picture I showed you of a normal artery versus a diseased artery, you can see all the scar tissue that was there. So that's, that's a hyper-exaggerated response that occurs. These things right here, diabetes and hypertension are significant contributors and obesity as well. We now refer to this process as metabolic syndrome. And people who have high blood pressure, diabetes, who are obese, who have high cholesterol and high saturated fat, and who are acidotic in nature with high inflammation, they're setting themselves up for not only atherosclerosis, but many other things, which I'm not even addressing today, such as autoimmune disorders, chronic diseases, hypertension, and even cancers. So how do, how do we currently treat atherosclerosis? So the, what we typically do is, with this uh, Western model of medicine, is we throw lots of medications at it, and we throw lots of operations at it. Somebody has high blood pressure or diabetes or, or high cholesterol, we put them on a pill, and we put them on a pill for the rest of their lives, or a couple of pills, or three pills. Most of my patients come into the office have between 8 and 15 medications. These medications are what I call stopgap measures. They're what I refer to in my own practice. They're plugging holes and putting out fires, but they're not taking care of the problem. The, people, the patients still have diabetes. They still have hypertension. They still have hypercholesterolemia. But we're just trying to uh, manage them with these medications. We're not actually getting rid of the problem. And therefore, despite all of this surgery and all these medications that we throw at the American population, studies show that we've only improved their lifespan by maybe two or three years with all of this technology and all of this modern medicine. Right now, our, the healthcare cost in the United States is around $3 trillion per year. And that's 2016 numbers. We don't have current numbers. They're estimating by 2025, it's going to be $6 trillion. Well, we can't afford healthcare today. How are we going to afford $6 trillion in just a few years down the road? Uh, what if I told you atherosclerosis was preventable? What if I told you that atherosclerosis is possibly reversible? I finished my vascular fellowship in 1998. Very modern times, I was learning all these new minimally invasive techniques and advanced surgical techniques, and all of the focus is on that. Uh, it's on surgery and, and uh, balloons and angioplasties and things like that. Very interesting to me, I was never told that you could reverse atherosclerosis, that you could treat atherosclerosis, uh, that it would, could go away. In 1990, Dr. Dean Ornish published this study. So remember, I finished my fellowship in 1998. This study was published in 1990, and it was published in The Lancet, which is a very prestigious uh, journal out of the United Kingdom. These were patients with coronary artery disease, uh, and they did angiograms on them to identify the disease and how much they had. Uh, and then they split them up into two groups. Uh, the control group was the, the group that was told, go home, eat right, exercise, and they gave them best medical care at the time. Okay, Kind of standard medical care. They were seeing their cardiologist regularly. 
and they were advised to clean up their lives. But they weren't given any particulars. They were just done what everybody was done. In the treatment group, intensive lifestyle treatment group, they were put through a kind of a rehab, cardiac rehab program, where they were put on a plant-based diet, a very healthy plant-based diet. They were put on an exercise program. If they were smokers, they, were got, they helped them stop smoking. They even did stress management. They did meditation. So they worked on sleeping better. So it was a, an overall lifestyle management program. Uh, and then they went back and redid angiograms on uh, looking at these arteries in the heart. In the uh, control group, well, guess what? Just we know what was going to happen. It was going to continue to get worse. And it did. It got significantly worse. But in the treatment group, the coronary artery disease actually reversed and went away. And this study was just a one-year and a five-year study. The number of coronary events was much lower, statistically lower. The number of deaths was lower. The number of patients who advanced to needing open heart surgery or a stent was lower uh, by significant amounts. So this, this was a, a very significant landmark study. And yet, eight years later, they weren't teaching this to fellows in vascular surgery. Another pioneer in our field, Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn, he's taken heart patients with very advanced disease who could not be operated on, many of whom were told they're going to die within a few months, and put them on a very intensive plant-based diet, which actually didn't include salt, oil, and sugar several servings of spinach a day. And the important thing about that spinach is that these green leafy vegetables help our body produce nitric oxide. And this is a picture of one of his colleagues. This was a physician who was told, you've got a significant blockage in your left anterior descending artery. It's the main artery that supplies the ventricle of the heart, and you need to have a heart bypass operation. And this uh, colleague of his suddenly said, well, you know, gosh, I don't think I want to have my chest cracked open. Let me go talk to my, my buddy. Uh, and he did. And and Dr. Esselstyn put him on this uh, very intensive program. And look at the dates here. We've got 1996 to 1999. It's about two and a half years later. And this is the same artery. And that disease is gone. When I first saw this, I was in disbelief. I didn't think this could be true because uh, it, was, it was just something that uh, I had never been told was even possible. So what changes did these people make? Uh, well, they went on a whole food plant-based diet uh, full of vegetables, fruits, whole grains, legumes, and here's my favorite right here, green leafy vegetables. Uh, as a vascular surgeon, I'm particularly biased to them. I personally get as many servings a day as I can. Kale, arugula, romaine, spinach, greens of all sorts, beet greens, collard greens. Green leafy vegetables stimulate nitric oxide production in your body. When you have atherosclerosis where your nitric oxide production is way down, it's been destroyed because you destroyed your endothelium. Well, this is a a nice way to get that nitric oxide back in the body and help your body begin to heal itself. I particularly like arugula. It's my favorite because it's actually the one that stimulates uh, the most nitric oxide production in the body. So I, every one of my salads has uh, arugula in it. So this diet also has starches like potatoes, rice, whole grain, pastas, not, nothing to be afraid of. Limited nuts and seeds and minimally processed foods or no processed foods. Now, when you're trying to reverse disease, it's a more aggressive diet than when you're just trying to prevent disease. Uh, when you're trying to just eat a standard whole food plant-based diet, you can have a, a small amount of nuts and, and seeds in your diet. Uh, Dr. Esselstyn, when he was doing his stuff, he had no nuts and seeds and no avocado. He eliminated oil completely from the diet. When you're trying to treat disease, you have to go all the way. If you're trying to prevent it, I think if you live a very clean whole food plant-based lifestyle, you will never develop the disease and therefore you don't have to go to those kind of far ends. So what does this diet not include? Well, it doesn't include meat, and uh, when I say don't eat meat, I get asked all the time, well, does that include fish? Well, yes, fish is a meat. 
And I'm not going to get into the details of all of the different pathways, how meat causes atherosclerosis, but meat is the source of cholesterol and saturated fat in our diet. But that's not the only pathway. So if people tell me they're going to eat lean meat or they're going to eat meat that doesn't have much cholesterol and fat, that's great, but that's not the only part of the pathway of uh, getting atherosclerosis from meat. It doesn't include dairy. Dairy and cheese are high in saturated fat. Cheese is 70% saturated fat. It doesn't include eggs. Eggs is a high source of cholesterol in our diet, uh, about 150 milligrams per egg. Uh, it doesn't include highly processed foods, including oils. There's no good oil. Okay, sometimes people will say, well, what about, what about olive oil? Well, olive oil is a highly processed food. It's taken out all of the nutrients, and it's nothing but a high-calorie fat. Uh, this diet also does not include any added salt or added sugar. I'd like to comment that there are thousands of studies that have shown the hazards of the consumption of meat, dairy, salt, sugar, and oil, and the effects it has on our body, blood vessels, organs, and bodily systems. There are also thousands of studies that show the benefits of plant-based foods for our health. Yet there's not one study out there that shows that there's any deadly effects of eating fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. Uh, it took over 7,000 studies documenting the deadly effects of smoking before the Surgeon General finally put that little label I talked to you about. Meat is the new tobacco. I just showed you that there's thousands and thousands of studies that show meat causes problems and that plant-based foods don't. The World Health Organization has classified processed meats as a class one carcinogen. And I brought up class one carcinogens earlier. Well, so what is a processed uh, meat? So it's uh, pepperoni, sausage, hot dogs, um, uh, uh, packaged deli meats, bacon. World Health Organization did is took a couple of dozen experts from all around the world and they looked at about 800 studies, what they considered really valid, uh, well-done studies. And the consensus of this group was that these processed meats were a class one carcinogen. So what does that mean? And I alluded to it earlier. It makes them in the same class as asbestos, tobacco, and plutonium. So we are a pill-popping nation. There's a pill for everything, yet we're still a nation riddled with disease. Why? Because we're not addressing the underlying causes of the diseases. I feel like I've been plugging holes and putting out fires, but we haven't been addressing the underlying disease. This is a, a great cartoon. Uh, I give credit to Dr. Dean Ornish. These are two doctors who are mopping up the floor. The water's flooding and they keep clearing up, they keep mopping up the floor to try to take care of the problem. But the real problem is that the faucet is on and the sink is plugged and it's overflowing. So the real way to take care of this problem is at the source, not to take care of the problem after it occurs. And that's kind of the way I, I look at treatment of atherosclerosis today. So what does a typical day's menu look like? As I've alluded to, it's whole food, plant-based. It's minimally processed. You can have a variety of foods and I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. Uh, you can still enjoy your favorites but just prepared in a healthier way. These are whole foods here. Uh, legumes, bulbs, flower vegetables, fruits, uh, stem vegetables, the leafy vegetables, again, my favorite, roots, whole grains. Uh, mushrooms are actually not a plant, they're a fungus, but they're very healthy for us. And then a limited number of nuts and seeds. And by limited number, I think a, a healthy amount is one to two ounces a day. Here's some breakfast ideas, a chia seed pudding, waffles, an acai bowl. I personally, um, do a lot of oatmeal. It's easy and I can throw fruit and berries and nuts and flaxseed, ground flaxseed on it and I feel like I'm getting a very healthy meal. But when I don't have time for that, my go-to is a, uh, a green smoothie because I feel, I feel like I'm getting my greens, a good start to the day by getting my greens. Again, pancakes, breakfast burritos. This is one of my favorite lunches right here. Um, I do this three times a week. Don't be afraid of uh, healthy starches, healthy carbs. I will do a potato and throw 
uh, a vegan chili on it or lentils on it, uh, and then also some uh, veggies like asparagus or broccoli. Maybe combine it with a, with a good salad. Alternative burgers and sandwiches, a different type of plate. For dinner, this is a pizza, uh, just uh, minus the cheese. Different uh, options here. Snacks, I tell people, get rid of all of the uh, unhealthy snacks, get rid of the potato chips, get rid of the processed foods, and stock your pantry and your kitchen with fruits and, and vegetables. Prep them ahead of time so that when you're hungry and you want a snack, you have something you can go to very quickly. Garbanzos, avocado, there's the fruits and veggies right there. Now I want to take a second and talk about nutrient composition. In general, standard American diet is a very nutrient-poor diet, whereas a plant-based diet is a nutrient-rich diet. This is an example of that. This is looking at a standard 500-calorie meal, comparing a plant-based diet to an animal-based diet, animal food-based diet, like a meat-based diet. So in the plant-based diet, a very telling feature is there's no cholesterol. In a, just 500 calories of an animal-based diet, 200 milligrams of cholesterol. And I'll take a second to talk about cholesterol since it's a very near and dear to my heart and a, a significant component of atherosclerosis. I don't think that we were ever meant to eat exogenous cholesterol. We didn't develop that way. And we make all the cholesterol we need. Now, cholesterol is extremely important. We need it for the stabilization of our cells and many processes. Uh, hormones, certain hormones are made from a cholesterol base. If you look at those of us who are plant-based or vegan and haven't eaten any cholesterol for decades, we're not cholesterol deficient. And there's, there's another interesting fact. You know, we use 200 as our standard, you know, what we're trying to shoot for for our cholesterol. The way we come up with what is a, uh, a number for a blood test is we sample a, a fair number of people in our population and then we uh, see what the number is and we do a, a curve and some standard deviations. We look at the median and the standard deviation. We say, okay, the median is going to be our average number and the standard deviation is going to be our range. When they were doing these studies to say what's an acceptable cholesterol, well, guess what? They tested it on our meat-eating American population who had a 40% incidence of coronary artery disease. So if you have a cholesterol of 200, you've probably got a 40% chance of getting coronary artery disease. Um, there's many of our colleagues and some studies that show that if your cholesterol is below 150, your risk of getting coronary artery disease is extremely low. So I spent a lot of time on that, but let's get back to the nutrient composition. Now, uh, fat. Uh, an animal-based diet has 36 grams of fat. A plant-based diet has 4 grams of fat. And we all need a little bit of fat, so I'm not eschewing this little bit of fat. In fact, a plant-based diet, probably 10, 15, maybe 20% of our calories come from fat, and that's important and good. Um, and here's an interesting point. The same 500 calories of energy uh, gets you the same amount of protein. Now, you kind of go, well, what does that mean? Well, actually, you're... you're to get 500 calories of a plant-based diet, you have to eat a little bit higher volume, okay? Maybe twice the volume or maybe three times the volume. But that's actually good, and I'll get into that in just a second. So, uh, to get, so to get that 33 grams of fat or protein, it's not that they weigh the same. Uh, it's that the calories that you get from them are the same. Now, here's another important thing. Dietary fiber. We get 31 grams from a plant-based meal. Look at that. Zero from an animal-based diet. So when people... Uh, say to you as a vegan or a plant-based person, whole food plant-based person, where do you get your protein? Well, we can show you that uh, you get plenty of protein. But the question is, you, we should be asking them, where do you get your fiber? Uh, and, the, and the American diet is terribly deficient in fiber, and 97% of Americans are fiber deficient. So 97% of Americans don't get the recommended daily amount of fiber. I think that number is 25 grams a day, uh, and most Americans get about 15 grams a day. 
And the reality is I think we should get 40 to 50 grams a day. A, a, a woman should get about 40 grams and a man should get about 50 grams of fiber a day. So, and then let's look at some of these other things. Vitamin C, iron, calcium, beta carotene, vitamin E, folate, magnesium. So a plant-based diet is full of vitamins, minerals, uh, and it's also full of some other stuff, antioxidants and phytonutrients, which I haven't even gotten into, but these are the healthy things that reduce the oxidative stress in our body which, and, and fight cancer uh, and fight inflammation. So there's fiber in every plant food. Fiber is important because it helps eliminate toxins. Uh, it binds toxins. That, it, binds, it binds cholesterol. Uh, fiber fills you up. So remember I said you have to eat more of a plant-based meal to get the same amount of calories. Getting all that fiber in you helps you feel full earlier. And it's a good prebiotic. And a prebiotic is what feeds our probiotics. In other words, it's what feeds our gut bacteria. We need to have a healthy gut. And one of the ways you have a healthy gut is by having this fiber, which is a prebiotic, to feed our gut bacteria and keep a healthy gut flora. It's important in so many things, including our immune system. This red line kind of divides plant-based foods on the left versus animal-based and processed foods on the right. And this is the calorie density. The average American eats three to five pounds of food a day. And that's what you need to kind of make yourself feel full and happy uh, and satiated. And these, these numbers are calories per pound. So heavily uh, oil-laden foods are going to get you way more calories than you should get. And that's why I also tell people to nuts and seeds are high fat. And that's why I tell people to limit their nuts and seeds. They're very healthy for you, but you shouldn't be eating too many of them. I'd like to shift and look at this end of the spectrum. One pound of vegetables is 100 calories. One pound of fruits is 300 calories. One pound of whole unprocessed starches, 600 calories. So think potatoes. One pound of beans, legumes, uh, chickpeas, 600 calories. Why are processed foods so high in calorie? Well, because they contain a lot of sugar and they contain a lot of oil. Uh, another slide that talks about this caloric density, and it's just a, a visual slide to help you understand. Here's vegetables. 400 calories of vegetables will fill up your stomach, make you feel full. If you ate that three times a day, you're only going to get 1,200 calories. You're actually going to lose weight on that diet. 400 calories of animal products. Cheese is very high calorie and dense. And then oil. One tablespoon of oil has 120 calories. Carbs are not bad. Carbs have been demonized in our society, but it's also because People don't really understand what carbs are. Carbs are sugars uh, or carbohydrates. And there are, I make a distinction between healthy carbs and unhealthy carbs. But to define unhealthy carbs, sugary cereals. Well, this might be a whole wheat cereal, but got sugar added to it. You think of potatoes as carbs, but that potato chip actually is fried in oil. And most of the calories come from an oil. So when you're eating a potato chip, you're not really eating a carb, you're eating oil. So you can see the calories aren't coming from the carbohydrate. They're coming from the oil that's added to the carbohydrate. So now let's look at these healthy carbohydrates. Fruits, vegetables, green leafy vegetables, starchy vegetables like potatoes, sweet potatoes, beans, lentils, and peas. These are all mostly carbohydrate. In fact, a plant-based and vegan diet, well, a clean vegan diet, is mostly a carbohydrate-based diet. Is, is making this change difficult? And it can be at first for some. We've got habits, traditions, politics, culture, and social pressures that kind of have a momentum that keep our general population going in a certain direction. When people are trying to make this change to a whole food plant-based diet, um, I tell people, uh, look for that support system. You know, that's why my wife and I do what we do with plant-based DFW. We do uh, potlucks and talks and 
get-togethers so people can have a, a place of social gathering. And then I also say arm yourself with information. We're in a great age. I always admire the people who became plant-based and vegan 20 years ago before the Internet existed because they kind of had to do it on their own. They had to go to the library and check out a book, and then they had to read that book. And today we've got the Internet with, with so much information. And granted, you have to be critical about what you're reading, but the information is out there. You know, we've got books that we recommend and, and documentaries we recommend. So there's lots of resources out there. We learn most of our knowledge about eating from TV and advertising and culture. We've all heard of these things. Meat, it's what's for dinner, or got milk, uh, the incredible edible egg. When the egg industry was trying to make uh, an advertisement, and they wanted to say in that ad that eggs were healthy and good for you, the USDA at least stood up for the American population in that instance and said, no, you can't say that because we know they're not healthy. So instead, it was probably a good thing for the egg industry. They came up with this jingle, the incredible edible egg, and it probably sold them more eggs than if they had just told the American public that eggs were healthy. Probably if they had told us they were healthy, we probably wouldn't eat them as much. Here's the one that got me when I was younger. Where's the beef? I used to go to Wendy's three times a week. Gosh, I can't believe I used to do that. This is just an example of how our world influences our choices. One of my colleagues uh, talks about how no one is getting rich from you eating a potato and a bowl of fruit. He also, he also says there is no big broccoli uh, lobby. There are the meat lobby, the dairy industry lobby, uh, there's the pizza in lobby, you know, there's, there's lobbies, there's lots of money being thrown at us uh, to keep us on this path where we're continuing to eat the standard American diet. Professionally, um, I had become a little bit frustrated over the course of a decade, a decade and a half, in the sense that, uh, sure, I'm, I'm, I'm helping my patients kind of in an acute uh, manner. I can do a quick bypass or a put a stent in and open up an artery, and 90% of the time I told you I saved their leg, and, and a great number of times I prevent them from having a stroke. But what was happening, my patients kept coming back to me. I called them repeat offenders. These repeat offenders, they kept coming back because we're fixing, we're plugging the hole and putting out the fire, but we're not getting to the root cause. So the root cause is continuing to cause those problems to occur. And so I began to get a little bit frustrated by it uh, because I felt like I wasn't doing a service to my patient, not as good as I could. And so this is where my professional and, and personal paths merged because when I found out this information that you can reverse heart disease, you can reverse atherosclerosis, and you can prevent it, I started to teach this in my practice to my patients. And then my wife and I wanted to take this even more and bigger and beyond my patients uh, to the community because we wanted to get to people before they develop the disease. My patients are already needing operations. They already need bypasses. They already need their arteries cleaned out. They've already got gangrene. So you can't put them on a plant-based diet and, and hope for a few months uh, for something to happen. They kind of needed that stuff. But, and of course, I would counsel them on changing their lifestyles because I would want them to have less problems in the future. But we also wanted to reach out to the community, uh, try to get to people before. I'm going to sum this up for you in cardiovascular disease in one pretty little package. Despite all the money we throw at cardiac disease, it's the number two thing we spend money on. The number one thing is dementia, a great deal of which is vascular. Uh, the second most expensive thing in our healthcare system, to the tune of three to four hundred billion dollars, is coronary artery disease. And despite all that money we throw at it, we still have 650,000 cardiac deaths annually. We have 140,000 stroke strokes annually, and then 200,000 amputations annually. So just these things is a million cases of morbidity and mortality, not to mention the dementia in the millions, the impotence in the millions. I didn't talk about kidney failure. So it's the number one cause of death and disease in the United States. We're throwing all this money at it, and yet we're not materially impacting it uh, from our current 
uh, medical therapy, which we call healthcare, but I call sick care. The other thing about my patients that was frustrating me is not that they were just coming back over and over and over again, but I wasn't, uh, you know, making them better. But the other thing that was getting to me is that they were in declining health. Starting in their 50s, they weren't getting to this point in their lives where they could retire and enjoy their lives and go travel and be with their grandkids and, and spend time with their families and finally stop working. They're getting sicker and sicker and sicker. This chronic disease in America is taking its toll at the end of our lives. And so they're in declining health. But not only that, they're, you know, they're uh, in and out of the hospital all the time. Their lifestyles are bad. And they're spending all their money, this money that they've been spending their lives trying to save for retirement so they can go and travel. We got a declining quality of life towards the end of our lives. Medical costs are the number one cause of bankruptcy in America. So after our 50s, that's why I want to tell you that story. After our 50s, we're busy, we're really busy dying, not living. Do we all have atherosclerosis to some extent? Now that you know that, what are you going to do about it? Uh, we are what we eat, okay? So think about it before you put something in your mouth. Think about what that's going to do to you. So let food be thy medicine. Hippocrates said it several thousand years ago. I have a couple of resources I would like to share uh, with you. Uh, first, uh, I have uh, uh, created a PDF guide uh, which uh, includes many of the concepts presented today, uh, and it's yours free uh, to download. Also, I would like to tell you about our YouTube channel. Uh, here at uh, Plant-Based DFW, we have had to retool and rethink the way we reach out to our community uh, and to our audience. Typically, before the coronavirus epidemic, we would have several in-person events uh, to be able to connect with our community. Uh, because of coronavirus, we've had to uh, uh, now focus on our online presence in order to share our message uh, with such things like our podcast. And in particular, what I want to tell you about today is our YouTube channel. Our YouTube channel focuses on plant-based nutrition and lifestyle. Something that I'm uh, particularly proud of is our more recent series on how to grow uh, your own vegetables at home. As you may recall from the talk today, uh, green leafy vegetables are near and dear to my heart. Uh, and so I took up the hobby of growing my own vegetables at home. And then uh, well, we decided to share our journey uh, with you uh, through a series of uh, YouTube videos which uh, show you how to do, in particular, hydroponic gardening at home. As I conclude, I would like to comment on uh, our current crisis with the uh, uh, coronavirus and COVID-19. This is just the latest in a series of zoonotic or animal-derived epidemics which have been accelerating over the last uh, 100 years and decades. Uh, I'd like to comment that I don't believe that it's not uh, if another epidemic is coming, but a matter of when. And I think it's going to be sooner than later when you look at how things are going. So if you look at the risk factors for death from coronavirus uh, or COVID, they are hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and obesity. These are the same risk factors that I address and talk about with uh, atherosclerosis and cardiovascular disease. So it's not a big leap to think about the fact that in order to make yourself healthier and more prepared to combat the coronavirus, it's the same diet that you would use for uh, prevention uh, and treatment of cardiovascular disease and uh, in the bigger picture the same diet that makes you healthier and protects you against all chronic diseases. So it is important to understand that we need to focus on prevention and not treatment after the fact. Let's not wait till we get uh, coronavirus and, and, uh, and then address these uh, comorbidities. Let's be healthier ahead of time. Let's uh, 
incorporate a healthier lifestyle and healthier diet in order to prevent hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and cardiovascular disease, which then makes you less at risk for coronavirus and for these future uh, epidemics and pandemics which are uh, bound to happen. And I think it's extremely important that we need to critically address our treatment and interaction of animals that has helped promote these issues. Thank you very much. Have a blessed day.